friend. Season 3 of the Mystical American Patriot Society is transmitting to you from a high desert encampment, on the frontier of our agrarian hoplite republic. This is a variety program for happy warriors who are getting some seriously bad vibes from the deranged post-Christian technocracy. Grab a tankard of yak's milk and join us by the campfire. As Sumo and Cavi return to shake your surveillance, expel your parasites, and generally have a good time. Are you ready? Stand by. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We've had a little bit of a hiatus. That's okay. You're not angry. I'm not angry about it. Well, what? Uh, we're back, though. We're back, and I think we've got exciting things for the future. I've been working on many new things in my absence, one being, uh, I think, perhaps, uh, I have a way to maybe reclone some previously um, destroyed assets. We'll see. We'll see what happens in the future. But today we have a great interview with um, a very interesting man who wrote the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, a book called the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, named Gary Wayne. It is a wide-ranging and and rolling interview about, uh, well, very interesting topics, I think that you will agree. Um, and, uh, you know... I don't know what to make of it all. It's pretty intense. Uh, it's pretty uh, out there. It's pretty crazy. It's it's nothing crazier than we've said on the show before. But when you put it all together, it makes for a very intense picture. And I hope that you'll all enjoy it. Um, so without further ado, uh, here is the interview. But before I but before we do it, everyone go support us on Gumroad or Patreon, please, because this cloning technology to get a new to get a, a perhaps. Perhaps a dead co-host back is not cheap. This stuff does cost money. We need help. Uh, and that would be great if you would support us in that way. Um, anyway, without further ado, after, but don't listen, pause it now until you go, until you go pay money, right? Pause, pay money, and then come back and finish. That's the order of operations here. And after you go pay money, ready? Here we go. I'm going to pause for you to go do that. Okay, now without further ado, uh, let's get into the interview with uh, Gary Wayne. 
Okay, everybody. Hello. Uh, welcome to the, the show, the episode. We are here with uh, Gary Wayne, uh, who I think is going to be it's going to be a very interesting uh, show. He he is the author of the Genesis Six Conspiracy, which is uh, Gary. Your book is really it's a I would say it's a it's a really wild endeavor. It's got <laughs> a lot of a lot of interesting things in there. Giants, alternative history. It ties into conspiracy theory, secret society, the whole like nine yards. Yeah, it's probably the most unique book that's out on the marketplace. And I guess, you know, when it ties in so many different things, it's probably the ultimate conspiracy book. Uh, yes. So, yeah, it's <laughs> and it's uh, it's part one. I have book two coming out Uh it's scheduled for release for March 12th. That's actually taking for pre-orders right now on my website and also on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and, and other places as well as Kindle. But yeah, it is a, it is a book that, um, you know, I stopped writing many times because I just thought, you know what, this is, this is too crazy. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and who's going to believe it? Who's going to, who's, who's going to publish it and who's going to read it. So but I just kept sort of being drawn back in and drawn back in and, and, and kind of showing more and more things. And it just, it, the project sort of grew and grew and grew. So it wasn't a book that was written overnight. And it's not the book that I thought I was going to write uh, when I started out. Uh, but yeah. after I decided to add in other things to the topics that I wanted to talk about, uh, then I needed to learn about other religions. I needed to learn about... Uh, the mystery schools, I needed to learn about secret societies, and it just started going down all, all these different rabbit holes. And, uh, you know, it was uh, just the writing of the book, let alone the research before that, you know, the total of it's getting close to 40 years, but uh, about 15 years to write the book. Yeah, I mean, well, it, in answer to your question of who's going to read it, and this, the, our audience is right up the alley for this. We talk about these topics all the time, uh, but your book is a very probably the most comprehensive thing that's ever been put together about it. And I'm impressed with the book and impressed that you are endeavoring to write book two, because I know how hard it is to write a book. And you, yours, the first one was like, I don't know what would be in print. Uh, Cause I have like the, you know, but the, it's, it's, it's like, isn't it like 800 something pages? Yeah. Just over 800 pages. And yeah. I edited, I edited out over 300 pages because I knew I needed to get it down to a size where somebody might entertain um (laughs) publishing so yeah it's and it's uh loaded with information right from page one right through to the last page and it's heavily annotated so people can check the sources and verify what i'm saying um quite easily and i have the bibliography of course in the book so they've got all the sources right there to verify how many how how many words was it total do you know yeah, it was well over 300,000 words. Yeah, see, like, if, you, if you're not familiar, listeners, with publishing, they like fifty to 80,000 words, and they're like, yeah. oh, that's a good book size. Like, this is a this is a big book, because it gets exponentially more pricey to publish the thicker the book gets. Yeah, yeah, publishing so, but, costs have gone up 40% since I published book one, so. Yeah. It, it, I, it, miss, it, it misses the sweet. Work. Yeah, it misses the sweet spot of uh, where they like to price it. So, yeah. and so pe- when people buy my book, then, you know, they really want it because they're spending a fair bit of money. And if they're buying a signed copy from my website, 
versus Amazon or somewhere else, then they're paying even more because of the freight that I ship that because I live in Canada, it's like $25 US to ship it to the US. So it's to be an expenditure. But one of the really cool things about the book is that, you know, most books don't last that long on the shelves or for popularity. And there's 25,000 new books coming out every three months. So it's hard to keep a spotlight on it and, and stay relevant. My book came out, it says 2015, technically it was 2016 because it was late in December and I didn't have a platform, nobody knew who I was. And so every year the book sales have increased. And so this last year has been the best year in the sales just as every year before that. And it just, it's holding its ground in that marketplace, that very competitive marketplace and uh, continuing to reach new people. That's very impressive. Like you said, most book sales first three months and then it's pretty much over. Yeah. <laughs> For most people. That's very impressive. Uh, so you're in Canada. My co-host, I don't know if we can ever hear him or not, Cavi. He is also, well, he's a Canadian. He's currently in Malaysia for some reason. Oh, yeah. But well, it's, war- um, it's warmer vacation. there. Yeah. <laughs> what part of Canada? Vancouver. Oh, okay. Yeah. The the nice part. The nice part of, yeah. of Canada. Uh, okay. Excellent. So, uh for people totally unfamiliar with your work, it is, it is, I guess it starts, I would say, if I, it, was, it is, it is, I don't know where you got started, but it seems like the entry point is in the title, the Genesis six conspiracy and in the book of Genesis and how, what really intrigued me about it first and foremost is how you have this unique take on, um, the creation story and how you see it as, because if you, most people, if you read Genesis one and two, the standard line is either, well, it's two creation stories sandwiched together, like one version, and maybe the old, I don't know, Babylonians had two versions, and they put them, they didn't know which one to decide from, so they put them both in there. <laughs> or or that the second Genesis 2 is like a zooming in on Genesis 1 and like explaining it in more depth. Um, but there are problems with that view, and what I liked about your, and coming to your thing, is you said, no, they are. Number two is chronologically after number one, just the way it appears. Mm-hmm. And it is laying out uh, a pre-Adam humanity, which was created on day six. And then Adam is created some unspecified time later. Yes. That was really unique, a unique take on it. The first time I ever heard that was actually, I was probably in middle school and this, and this wild bushy eyebrowed guy came to our church and he said something like that. And I thought, that's weird. And then I never it's really crazy. thought about it again, <laughs> but, uh, it's but crazy. But, yeah, that's crazy. So, so how did you come to that? And, um, I guess, I guess what led you to that specifically that, yeah. I, that interpretation? so I'm a, I, I'm a prophecy buff and I came back to Christ through researching a book that I was challenged to read if I had the courage. And it was a book by uh, Hal Lindsey, the late great planet earth. And this was like in 1980 or 81. And I was really, really young. And you know, that, that book scared the socks off of me and I had to verify it, mm. you know, with, because it was, if there's any truth in it, I need to know. And I'm a contrarian. So I don't accept what anybody says or what somebody says, something says, I want to verify it myself. So I looked up at the verses, but I also understood that people manipulate the Bible left, right, and center. And right. so I thought the only way I can verify it properly is I need to completely log uh, the whole Bible and all the prophecy narratives. And then, you know, sort of along the way, you very quickly you get into Genesis 6 and there's giants there. And my, I'm getting like 
you know, this whole brain freeze about what the heck is that all about? And I don't want anything to do with it. So I ignore it the first few times as I'm logging all of these trails. Yeah. So what I'm trying to do is, is establish whether or not he, what he was telling was accurate. And for the most part, I think he was, he did a very darn good job you know, from my perspective and that I became smitten with prophecy just as I was a mythology buff and a history buff before. And it led me back to Christ. But then I'm thinking, okay, there's a faith issue here, but if the God of all things is providing his word through his word, then it shouldn't be in contradiction. Mm. So one of the things I do is I, I need to verify these things. So I'm looking at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and I'm thinking, you know, it's in conflict. Uh, it's really yeah. quite strange that the details are different. They don't perfectly mesh and they ought to so either one of two things the bible is in contradiction or something else is going on so what else is going on and then i'm looking at it well i've been told that you know eden was maybe day eight well you know it doesn't say day eight right and there's a different order of creation uh adam is created singular people on day six are created male and female and plural and told to multiply and and take over the earth and they're allowed to eat anything that they want um adam is put in singular in eden and eve is created sometime later and they're not permitted to eat from the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil and those are just sort of the beginnings of some of the differences so i logged all of those differences and i I actually have a document for people that if they want to get a hold of me through my website at the genesis six conspiracy.com that's the number six conspiracy.com go to contact the author and say show me the adam and eden document or day six versus eden document or two creation document i'll send you that document so if you're christian you want to get back to the original hebrew of it and uh the additional meaning that you're going to get and walk through it biblically i've got documents for you on that and so Mm. it came clear to me that it's likely not that the bible is in contradiction but once i understood that these are two creations and adam was created for a special purpose sometime later and we have no idea how long later sometime after day seven Mm. and who knows days one through six could be as in Second Peter talks about a thousand years. So you're talking a fair bit of time and and almost that, you know, some unexplained from a Christian dogma years uh, between day six and Adam. And so it also starts to get rid of other issues I was struggling with, like Cain and where he moved to and the implication there were people there and that he built a city and he found a wife. And all of these things that aren't in chronological order of that being available to him, because Seth isn't born until Adam is 130 years old uh, after Cain kills Abel, and daughters and and sons are born sometime later, and we're not told how far downstream and how many sons until you get into like Deuteronomy 32, where it says 70 sons that Adam actually had for the number of the nations. So... I'm looking at all these different things. All of a sudden, there's no contradictions. Everything starts to make sense if there's two creations and there's a special creation for Adam for a special purpose. Yeah. Yeah. And it's to me, like what you were saying, the the, the thing that really jumps out at you when you read the Old Testament that everyone skips over because they don't know what to do with it is the 
giants. It's like, oh, there are giants back then. <laughs> and sometimes some of them still hang around later. You know, you get to Goliath and people are like, he's sort of a small giant. Yeah. He's like the last hurrah of the giants. But some of them are he's, quite he's not that. He, he's not that small, though. Yeah, he's not. He's not that. But I mean, like, compared to like what seems to be the other ones earlier. Yeah, yeah, I think the the ones before the flood were significantly larger than the ones yeah. after the flood. Uh, you know, Goliath as a uh, king of Gath, and I make yeah. a, a case for it that he's of the royal bloodline and do that again also in book two, and I get into that in a little bit more detail. But he is six cubits in a span. And yeah, as a royal cubit of 21 close. inches, that's 11 feet, three inches. Yeah. And he was, and he was stout, uh, as he's described. Uh, and... So when it says stout in, in the King James Version Bible, um, it's referring to not being fat, but actually muscularly wide. And so mm. King Og's bed, which was nine cubits long and four cubits wide, uh, would be as King of Edrai and Ashtaroth would be uh, 16 feet tall uh, on the yeah. royal cubit and seven feet wide. So he's going to be 12 to 15 feet tall. Which is an and, enormous human being, seven yeah, feet wide. Yeah, <laughs> and four to five crazy. feet wide. And other giants are in that same range with like Orontes in Greek mythology or Achilles at yep. 12 feet. Yep. Uh, but Gilgamesh, and he's a little bit different exactly. kind of giant. Yep. He is, uh, you know, got dark hair um, and brown eyes. He doesn't have the red hair or the blonde hair or the blue eyes or the hazel eyes with the pale skin. So from a different watcher. Uh, but mm -hmm. he is, whether it's in the Ugaritic text, which has his accountings, or the various epic of Gilgamesh texts or other texts, they have a standard sizing for him as the king of Uruk, son of Lugalbanda and the fertility goddess Nin. And so two-thirds god, one-third human, a demigod, classic giant, and a second sort of incursion after the floods in the sixth generation. But he is 11 cubits tall. Mm -hmm. And seven cubits wide. So he's almost 19 feet tall and yeah. he's seven feet wide. And yeah. the one and the giants before the flood were even larger. Yeah. And just I think modern people, modern Christians especially, have no idea what to do with any of that. So they just mainly ignore it. To me, it's like I I get excited about it because there's always been something in me that has just presumed or known that like the ancient past was a lot more like uh Conan the Barbarian didn't, yeah. or something like the, you know it's got all this like magic and monsters and stuff I've always felt that was true because I still feel echoes of that today but they you know were mostly but not totally literally washed away by the flood was the idea um okay so so you you get into okay lay out for us if you would like your basic thesis about the 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 Adam two races like the the Adam people coming second and then the people before. And then how does that work out to who we are today? Are we from, are we from the line of Adam? Are we from the people before? Are we both mixed together? What's going on with all that? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. And again, for, you know, a lot of Christians, they, they'll come back and say, well, if you think there was two creations, how is Eve the mother of all the living? Right. So it's, right. it's a kind of, important to be able to answer those things because in my approach i don't like to leave out inconvenient passages and it, sure. and everything has that so you have to deal with these uh, sort of alleged conundrums but 
So, yeah, so you have a people that's created on day six, along with the Nahash, or the serpent people, the beasts of the field, as they're called in um, Genesis 3, and humans are created just after the beasts of the field. And Okay, so if you pause right there, this is an interesting point. The, so you're saying the, 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 the Nahash, the translation, could be not simply just beasts of the field, but they're like a, a people group themselves? Yeah, so it says okay. it says in Genesis three the the serpent was the beast of the field. Okay, and yes. this is this is a serpent being a serpent as we understand it today after it's been degraded to that sort of status for participating in the deception of Adam and Eve, and it's the one that is punished, not Satan, as some people um, believe. I think Satan's involved. I just don't think he's the one that's actually doing it because angels don't tend to get their hands dirty and blood mm -hmm. on their hands. They use their um, people who worship them and their spurious offspring. And when I say spurious offspring, that's an illegitimate offspring, as mm -hmm. in uh, an angel or a god and a human. And there are different types of spurious offspring. Nahash seems to be either or, because we're not told specifically that it's in day six, except that it's amongst that grouping. So what we don't know is the, did the fallen angels create something after their own image, particularly after the seraphim watchers, which are serpent-faced, mm -hmm. six-winged dragon, serpentine yeah, ser angels. Seraphim or dragons. I, I had a whole article yeah. about that. It's yeah, it's a weird, weird thing, but it's true. <laughs> yeah. And or is or did they were they just a special being that were taller than humans? Because in the Gnostic scriptures are actually um, the height of a camel, and they had preeminence before humans, which, again, from a Gnostic perspective, not a Christian one, but from a Gnostic perspective, perspective, they were created some time before humans, and then the day six people come along, and Adam will inherit those blessings with his special creation. So you have these different groups of people that show up before the flood. But one, one of the Nahash could be the reptilians, basically. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. like a, a exactly. reptilian-like that's, that's reptilian yes. race, yes. a serpentine-like race, which had dominion before man, but lost yep. it. Yeah, right. an intelligent, walking, talking being that was above all the other species until the creation of, of, of humans a little bit later. So, But this comes to a, a bottleneck at the flood. So mm -hmm. you have, from a Christian perspective, just eight humans that are going to survive. And we get from the writings that they're pure of spirit and pure of DNA. So no intermixing of the Nephilim bloodline, no DNA right. Which modifications. Which is what the Bible by... refers to in, uh, it says he's perfect in his generations. He's yeah. pure, he's pure human. He doesn't have the other stuff. Yes, absolutely. Right. And selected. And, and just as the other animals have not had... DNA manipulation either because and they're called to the ark and most of the earth is all corrupted in this time which is the Hebrew word shakath which means to decay to pervert to ruin mm -hmm. all words like that so and that's why the animals are called to the ark because God knows which ones are best representative and pure to start uh, the new world so you have this bottleneck and so you have eight people so we know you have Noah and his wife, we're mm -hmm. not told Noah's wife's name, and we presume she's a Sethite uh, from the Sethite line and the chosen line of uh, that's going to carry the the holy seed that will produce the, the Messiah down the road. And you have 
three other wives for the sons, and the sons are daughters of obviously Noah and and his wife. So okay, you so have the, you so you have a okay. possibility of yeah. one race being on the other side of the flood, right? But that doesn't make sense from what we see. So what makes more sense is is that the wives would represent either in a first generation or uh having dna from intermarriage between the sethites and the canites beforehand of the other races within those three wives and you would have three additional wives so you would have those four races then that show up after the flood and so you have that descendancy down through seth and noah and to noah and his wife and you have that going back to eve as the mother of all living and legally through the father back to adam Okay, so so in your idea that the on the ship with Noah, you've got lines from the the Adam the Adamic line is represented by Noah and who's, who's and his wife who's coming down from Seth, and so the three sons. Yeah, Adam's Adam and Eve's third son, and then you've got uh, the others and the three sons, and then the wives of the sons are from the mixture of the uh, Genesis. The day six humans yes. and Cain. Yes. So now everyone Adam, is, all the people are still there genetically. Yeah. And Adam is of the same species. So man in Genesis six goes back to Adam and there's several Hebrew Adam words, but they're all connected to each other. So he's of the same species. He's of a specific race. We don't know whether that's a, a separate race that is created or it's just one of the four that might've been created in day six. But what we can do mathematically is, account for all four races through the wives. Okay. 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 So that, okay. So in that way, in that way, we're everyone living today coming from the, the, the offspring of Noah and Noah's sons and their wives would be a mixture of the Adamic race. And then the ones that came before. Um, yeah, to, 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 to a certain degree, there would, would be that, um, You have the you have the table of nations in Genesis ten and First uh-huh. Chronicles that's going to detail the patriarchs of the nations of Noah after the flood, and then after Babel, after hundred years, you know they disperse. So you have those groupings where you can make an argument um, with uh, at, with uh, Abraham, uh, you know, coming through the Shem line and the genealogy that's there. That you still have this separate bloodline from Adam and Eve through Noah and his wife down through, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then to the 12 tribes and then through Judah to the Messiah. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, I think so. It's, 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 it's a bit, it's a bit of a, a, of a, of a puzzle, but I think I'm seeing it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I guess if that is if that's if that's where where if that's what you take take the Bible to be saying, why why make why would God be making this the second? Why not stick with the first people? Why is Adam's creation unique and separate from the others? Like what's going on there, and why was that choice made? Yeah, I think it goes to the root of why the giants are created. And believe okay. me, when I first read the giants, I had that you know, mental cognizant dissonance like everybody many times before I decided to deal with this. Uh, So I get it. Uh, So 
you know, the giants were created to destroy the Adamites from the face of the earth. Mm. And, and they're to do the will of the fallen angels. So it really goes back to the angelic rebellion. And so the angelic rebellion is angels that are immortal beings that have free will and free choice. And they had the ability to follow God or not. And many did not. In fact, we get a number that's quite astounding in the New Testament uh, in terms of the rebellious number of being a third. And that the loyal angels counted in Revelation are 10,000 times 10,000. It could be an allegorical number, but either way, it's a very large number. Mm -hmm. 10,000 times 10,000 would be 100 million. And right. you get the same number in, in Daniel 8, 10, and you also get that in the book of Enoch. So you get that consistency of that of that number. So that suggests, depending on how you want to do a third, is that 33 million or is that 50 million? depending on where you want to do the math on that, it's still a big number. It could be a little less or it could be even more. We don't know, but at least those, those kinds of numbers. And so you have them who are uh, going to look at the creation through days in one six um, and look at the creation of Adam who are, or the humans that they are going to um, lead astray. And I think that's why you get a creation of Adam in day six, or I mean, not in day six, in, in, in the Eden account. And he's created as a, with a special commission as the resolution to the angelic rebellion. Mm. And, and so you have Satan's first revenge that is going to say, hey, we're not going to let these creatures be raised up above us. And we're going to you know, bring them down. And that's why he's working. That's why Satan works with the Nahash to deceive Eve. And then you have, after that happens, it seems that it continues that that plan didn't put an end to what the angelic rebellion was wanting to do because in the Sethian line, in the generation immediately after Seth with Enosh, they began to look and follow God again. And I think that brings the next retort is the creation of the giants to ensure that humans do not choose their destiny to leave their names written in the book of life and not be blotted out, but have that chance. And that's the whole thing that's going through to have that chance to either leave your name in the book of life or have it blotted out that was written and named uh, each individual from before creation to have that opportunity. And so the Adamites are going to eventually be resurrected to be like angels and to be the inheritors of inheritance and then to judge those angels for all their crimes against humanity and against the earth. Mm. So the, so the, Adam is so the 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 in your in your reading the rebellion is already happening prior to the creation of Eden and Eden is created as a solution to the rebellion like here's the here's the here's the ambassador of what God actually wants to happen here's here's the the Adam and Eve and they're going to set things right but the war continues and they lead those people astray as well yeah, they lead. Yeah, they yeah they lead the people of day six away. They lead the people of the Nahash if they're created just before humans. Uh, they may have even have corrupted the earth before days one through six as well. That's a, another rabbit hole that I touch on in the book as well. Uh, and I think it better fits when the rebellion probably happens. But you could you could go either way with with this one. Um, and I think they both work. I just think. 
the other way fits better scripturally with all all the information that that we get. So what God does is he lets people convict themselves. And so mm-hmm. what we're seeing after the creation of humans is the rebellious ones continuing to indict themselves with the crimes they're going to do. And he's going to let that play out because as Alpha Omega, he knows the beginning and the end, and he knows exactly what they're going to do. And they're going to try and ensure humans are wiped from the face of the earth. And they actually come close to succeeding with the flood, except Mm -hmm. that uh, God intercedes so that all people will have that gift of life and opportunity to have immortality if they choose. And then he intercedes at other times as well, but just to ensure that the, all the names are going to have that opportunity. And there's a Messiah plan right from the beginning because he knows Eve and Adam are going to be deceived. He knows the things that are going to happen and he's just, he's letting it play out for a period of time. And so we know that the angels, they have a lot of knowledge. They had intimate knowledge with, with God, but they didn't have all the knowledge. And this becomes clear in the book of Corinthians, where it says the princes or the archons who rule this world, they wouldn't have ensured Jesus was crucified had they understood there was a resurrection. Mm. So they actually brought their fate <laughs> through their destiny and their choices right on themselves and that they will be after that point jesus actually goes to uh the rebellious angels who violated the laws of creation and committed the crimes against humanity into the pit prison or the abyss prison while he's in the grave and i think speculating on my part that he's telling them that when i resurrect on the sunday your rebellion's officially over and you're going to be going to the lake of fire that's spoke about in the book of Matthew that's reserved for Satan and his devils and his fallen angels. Mm-hmm. And so all they could do after that point is try and deceive as many people as they can and try and maybe do things that might give them a arbitrated settlement and have the world as a realm of their own away from God. And so they don't mind destroying the whole world. Uh, because they're not interested in a world with humans in it. They're interested in a world that has uh, them ruling it and that they are away from God and that they could renew the earth themselves is kind of what they, I think they believe and that they would populate that more with um, their spurious offspring, which would be, you know, the giants and the disembodied spirits of those giants, which they would provide a, obviously an oiketarian, which is a dwelling place for the spirit of a format, whether it's a clone or technology or whatever for them to live in, in this new, new world. So you get into that Shiva document of you have to have total destruction before you have a renewal and move into that new age. And that's the whole sort of sense to uh, what, what, the prophetic side of polytheism is is that we're in an age and we're in that age now where we, you would have that destruction by fire but out of those ashes the phoenix would rise in their allegories and and it's reserved for the people that uh you know are loyal to and are part of the bloodline that was created by the by the gods or the fallen angels mm. yeah there's just there's there's just too much in the ancient record, not just the the biblical one and like the Hebrew record, but like ancient Greece, Egypt, Sumeria, the Aztecs. You look at what they were t- 
talking about and there's like monsters giants there's so much there's so much in the bible with like snakes like the moses and the snake on the pole the flying serpents biting people that it's just to to cast it all off as allegorical or a metaphor or some psychological thing as people want to do is i don't think makes any sense well Um, and it doesn't make any mathematical sense. It's, yeah. I mean, you can't have the same stories told on all continents around the world. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so many of the events and details being identical. And who knows what we'll find on Antarctica? Probably something sort of similar. Um, if if in, you know, we ever you know live long enough to uh, see what was going on in Antarctica. But, I mean, you have pyramids on every continent. Yeah. You have the flood story on every continent. You every have giants on every yeah. continent. You have little people. You have, uh, you know, it's you have the rebellion of the gods on all of It's the same history. It's seen through two different lenses. One would be, as a generic sense, a polytheist lens, and then through the vernacular of the culture of the polytheist culture, and then the other one, the monotheist lens. But they're yeah. telling about the same events. And and I, you said, I think once you, people will ask like, well, why wouldn't you see these things anymore? And I think like, I guess my answer would be, I think we probably do. We just don't recognize it. Like you were saying, there does seem to be like genetic traits associated with these people. Like the, the Nephilim appear to have been predominantly red haired uh, people. And so you might say, well, maybe red haired people are carrying that gene still a little bit. Um, I don't know, or or like this idea you were, you brought up with like every culture has like a there was a race of gnomes or or leprechauns, yeah. and we still yeah, have little people today. Those genes are still here, and they sometimes re-express themselves seemingly at random in the population where you have you know dwarfism and all these other things. And there's no reason to think like in the past there weren't just a whole countries of those little people. Yeah, around. you know, it, you know, in the Bible, Christians aren't familiar with it. Uh, get a hold of me, I'll send you the passage on it. But you have the elementals that um, we are uh, enslaved to in this world, that they, they help govern this world as part of the visible ones. Biblically, we're told there's the invisible ones and the visible ones. So there's an offspring. And mm. uh, so yeah, and there, like- is, there is a residue of this this bloodline because giants show up again after the flood. Yes. We're not told we're not told how, but they do. And they, they show up as the Raphaim after the flood. And they also have red hair and blonde hair and hazel eyes and blue eyes. And then there's this dark haired variety that Gilgamesh or Nimrod kind of are depicted as. So there's there's a few different strains, just as there was, but the predominant one, as you said, for the most part, was the red hair and the blonde hair, with the red hair being the most um prize or the the kind of the combination of blonde and red it's kind of that light strawberry kind of color mm-hmm. and it always uh, made me uncomfortable because i have some nephilim traits and i've always felt like oh i have pale skin <laughs> hazel eyes i have red yeah. tinges there's red hair in my family um and that there is a gens that they keep themselves centered around and you know that's you know kind of the root word for genealogy and so i talk about it as the fairy gens in uh in in book one and the elven gens and i mentioned the elby gens which is mm-hmm. elby meaning pale white yep and from a specific patriarch which would be a specific giant which and- is probably related to albion which is england 
Yeah, it does have a connection to that as well. And I cover those connections in book two. Um, But it's it's from the same sort of root, right? And then you have that, like, and I I talk in book two about the Julia Gens, which is the Gens that is part of the Black nobility uh, of Italy. And also it's Black nobility can be used for the, you know, the royales of all of Europe, but there's a specific black nobility that takes their Julia gens back through like Julius Caesar, Augustus, the senator families, back to Romulus and Remus and to their celestial mafia godfathers. Mm-hmm. And so they all have a genealogy um, that they keep track of. And mm-hmm. so they call that a specific type of a gens and in that gens is where they and i don't write about rh negative in in book one but if you look at the royales they're heavily concentrated in rh negative blood and a yes. lot of people say this well, is you a can't. strange thing but it's true yeah and i have a great document on rh negative blood and they they have all of these additional traits uh, that they say is, you know, is, is attributed in surveys to red-haired people and what would associate to a lower level of the blonde-haired ones. But it's the RH negative, and people will say, well, you can't add something that's missing to a bloodline, so that makes no sense. And that's, you know, that's a great sort of superficial argument. And what RH negative is, it's missing the D antigen. So how do you add that in if it's missing, right? right. So it's not it's not the bloodline. I mean, they look at and talk about it in bloodlines as in Vrail, as in something in the blood, as in the Rosicrucians and, and, and Grail kind of ideology that goes back to giants. Um, yes, but it's the it's the gene, right? And I call it the gene of Isis in one of the chapters at, at the end of the book. And so in and, and there's specific genes that are or as it comes down to Isis would be like a mother goddess, but there would be a specific gene from each of the Rephaim bloodlines that would produce the royales. I call them Rex Deus in book one, which is Kings of God. Then I in book two I, I get into the Royale which is kings of God as well. A-L is a transliteration for the Hebrew word L for a god or an angel. And they believe they are the spirit's offspring. They keep those genealogies and how pure that bloodline is and how ennobled it is. And when we talk about ennobleness, that scioning in or grafting in of those bloodlines is where they fit into the hierarchy. So it's important to them. And so they look at themselves still as hybrids. Mm-hmm. And after the Nephilim or the Raphaim and or the fallen angel or the God that uh, originally produced their line. So King Charles III is on record for when he was Prince Charles as having his genealogy going back to Vlad the Impaler, yep. which is a royale and red-haired, hazel-eyed, pale-skinned, Tuatha mm-hmm. de Danan or Scythian or Raphaim, just as the Horim are red-haired giants in the Bible, and the Anakim are the blonde-haired blinds, uh, giants, and I provide details on that in, in, in book two as well, um, that he, he takes his bloodlines and his genealogies back to a tribe of Hercules, the Agrithi, Agrithi uh, if I pronounce that correctly, and uh, Hercules is the offspring of Zeus and alchemy, a human female. So yep. they track those genealogies and whether or not it's accurate or not. Yeah, people don't realize believe. Hercules, like Hercules is a Nephilim, basically. Yeah. Same, it's he the is. same thing. It's the same is. ideology. Yeah. He's a hero. Yeah. He's a hero. 
and a titan. They're called both. And uh, so it's common in Greek mythology. It's common all around the world that the gods created these giants through human females. So in the Atlantis mythology, you have Poseidon who uh, intermarries with Clito and creates 12 Nephilim kings for the Atlantean Empire. Yeah, yeah. And it's 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 so prevalent in America, too, in the sorry, Americas. Ten, 10 kings, sorry, not 12. Yeah, the, the Americas have so much of that. Like, there's so many, uh, the Aztecs and the Mayans and the Incas, they have this all this mythology about the 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 tall white gods that came yeah. and they had a they were gigantic and they had to fight them eventually because they became corrupt and cannibalistic it's like the same story everywhere you go yeah it's and the really hopi wild. call them the hopi call them the white snake clan that came from an yeah, island they, they in the India. same thing they say they're yeah. reptilian it's yes. everywhere yes, yes. <laughs> and that so if if you are uh, of the bloodline of a seraphim watcher, uh-huh. you would have those traits and you would have those traits because they can take a physical form and that's how they pass on that DNA and that gens. And so they would have gifts that would come with that as well. So that's why you have so many of the gods of polytheism and the Kings associated with cobras, serpents, and dragons, because that's the imagery of the gods and the imagery of the original royales. Uh, so, you know, you have like the Naga, uh, the Naga gods in India. Those are serpentine gods, right? You have the dragon creator gods in China. You know, typically Osiris and Isis are depicted as uh, uh, as serpent gods, uh, you know, with wings. Um, and you have the original Greek gods, to, you know, uh, depicted for the most part as a serpentine god. You have the plumed serpent and the feathered serpents of Quetzalcoatl and all of the Central American yep. and Thunderbird gods as you move through the First Nations of North and Central America. This is a constant, and they all produced yeah. a I royal mean, even, bloodline. Even in things like Arthurian legend, you know, Arthur's father is Uther Pendragon. Yeah, yeah and, Gwyn and, and Guinevere is the fairy queen he's the dragon king and he's she's the fairy queen right. and she's of the tuatha de danan yeah it's the same everywhere <laughs> right. yeah it's it's we swim in this 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 imagery within our history uh and and it's it's all there in plain sight we just have been sort of i think had our senses dulled to not recognize the imagery i mean it's everything is about their history, their genealogies, and their control over the earth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And here's where it gets even more weird is that like sort of, you know, you talk about how th that's still going on today. And these like bloodlines, basically you hypothesize are, are the secret societies, like the, the, the Rothschilds and the, the so forth and so on. Um, they are keeping this thing going and still seeking Basically, what they always sought to destroy the world and regain control over uh, the line of Adam. Yeah, so the ancient masonry, which also takes their creation back to before the flood mm -hmm. and into the time of giants and in the time of the development of Enochian mysticism that uh, merges with the angelic technology from the fallen angels or gods and polytheism, um, they attribute those same Canaanite 
patriarchs within their within their belief system. And so secret societies were originally for the royales. And so they mm-hmm. old masonry, you know, the noble and the elite, they they controlled the priest class, they controlled the the army class in terms of who led it. Uh they controlled all the major businesses, uh they controlled all of the education and they controlled the governments through through the kings and things. And so you have uh, this hierarchy that was formed before the flood that has continued after the flood because they reset up after the flood with a uh, re either a second incursion or survival of giants after the flood, and they they reset up again after the flood, and so they continue with this royal secret society, and they look at Nimrod as their mm-hmm. first. Um, First grand master after the flood. Who now, do you inherits, think that you, who, who, you do you subscribe to Nimrod being the same as Gilgamesh? I've heard people. No, no. Okay, no, Gil, yeah. Gil, Gilgamesh is third generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Nimrod is third generation. Gilgamesh is sixth generation. Okay, and there is an individual that I cover in book one, Enmer Akar. Um, that is third generation and builds a tower like Babel. And I would equate that as the Sumerian tradition. Okay. Uh, and there's a Sumerian tradition and there's a Cadian tradition of that. And there's actually other traditions of, of Babel around the world as well. So no, I would not put them as the same They're, They've been conflated. Uh, okay. So I take that, I take that on book two and tell how that sort of happens. And, um, but it's not accurate from the records that we have. So I think Nimrod was, like a giant um and acted like a giant and and probably intermarried with the giants uh to start the dynasties but not not the same so nimrod okay. receives the enochian mystic mystical religion and knowledge and the knowledge before the flood was greater than what we have today and i think we're just catching up to that so it'll be like the days of noah if we're in the last generation and the last generation will be like the days of noah so whenever that is we're just catching up to that technology I, now i, I think so that's 100 percent. that's like atlantis this idea of atlantis and so on yeah yeah uh, because it's america was started explicitly to form the new atlantis by like the the founders it, and so on yeah it was the templar dream to build the new right. atlantis so yeah, and they're the sort of the intersection to the modern secret society. So Nimrod receives this knowledge and this religion that he imposes on the Noahites at, at Babel and to build Babel Tower and uh, Babel City. Uh, and, you know, this is this is some significant knowledge because anything that they intend to do as one people speaking one language, they're going to be able to do. And by inference, it's with this... Um, knowledge that was brought to him by Hermes. So these Masonic societies, he writes the first constitution for uh, Masonry after the flood that is going to be renewed at Heliopolis uh, uh, about a thousand years later and, and sort of reformed, but he's he writes the first constitution. So this these Masonic societies populate the top part of the Thelemic tree. Mm. Uh, that they call it and so they're the trunk organizations as you see it and if you try if you try and set up a secret society organizational structure using pyramids it only works for like some of the groups or one particular type of group but it can't accommodate the size and the complexity of the 
organization. So they call it the thalamic tree and they have these trunk organizations. I cover the thalamic tree in book two for people who are wondering. And so at, on, on the trunk of it, you have Freemasonry at the bottom and you mm-hmm. have first level adeptoid in third degree in New York, right? 33rd degree in the Scottish, right? Above that is the Illuminati. Uh, and that's going to go up to five or six degrees in the old system. And then you're going to have the Rosicrucians, which which is the intersection of the rising lower blood lines, because you have to be invited to join these groups and to become an adept, uh, with the pure bloods or the royal bloodlines and societies that are above them. So above the Rosicrucians, you have the committee of 300 families you have the council of 33 families above that and then you have the 13 families and that's just the western western european organizational structure hmm. bloodlines around the world and in china and elsewhere they and and even in the in the old uh before the romanovs were overthrown as as descendants of the Putyanin bloodline out of Kiev, they had their own Masonic orders as well that control the top levels. So when we're talking about the top levels, we might be talking about orders at the very top uh, where the Anjou uh, are, are, are located, and Plantagenet is their junior offshoot. Uh, so not as high in, in, in the hierarchy, but in, in the families as you, as you get to the top. But there's, as you said, as I put down, there's a whittling of that bloodline uh, hierarchy. So the Knights of the uh, Golden Fleece is the order, Royal Masonic Order of the Anjou. And uh, that sheep that is the emblem that hangs down uh, on a chain represents the Golden Fleece. And the Golden Fleece was what was the material that the gods and to some extent the demigod giants uh, made their clothes from that helped their bodies uh, not to decay uh, in, mm. in the physical world. And Which so, is what Jason, uh, Jason and the Argonauts were after, if I have yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. They're trying and to steal so, back the golden fleece. Yeah. And they have a title in this, in, uh, in that order of the King of Jerusalem title that set off with the crowning of Baldwin II Anjou in 1118 in a small priory on the Rock of Sion. And it's currently held, and it's been transferred all through the generations. It's currently held by King uh, Philippe of Spain, Philippe Bourbon. And that came about through his father, Juan Carlos. And that transfer of that title was prepared for with the intermarriage of the Bourbon and the Habsburgs who inherited the King of Jerusalem title through intermarriage through uh, the Lorraine families and the Anjou of Lorraine, which were Anjou, de Bouillon, and de Payan. And if those names are familiar, they're the founders of the Knights Templar. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a, like a golden ardor uh, order that's in england there's two orders there's one that allows like politicians in that we get the superficial pablum for but there's the pure blood order that's still run by uh the windsors which are hanovers a german bloodline which is how charles gets his genealogy through vlad the appaler in the central american sort of intermarrying uh, of royales and uh, you know the norse which you know takes their bloodlines down through thor and through uh Tuatha De Danann, Norse mythology, and Odin is uh, the order of that 
royal bloodline is the Knights of the Seraphim. Mm. And you can't that would you, explain can't, so much. Yeah, you you can't get more obvious than that in yeah. terms of of the imagery. And so each of the families who have the thrones and there's uh, seven these are all real ori- things, by the way, people it, like these yeah. the, these orders, the order of the Seraphim, the Golden Fleece. You can look them up; yeah. they exist and they have real people in them. Yeah, yeah. Like Carl Gustav, uh, the King of Sweden, is in the yeah. the the order of the Knights of the yeah. Seraphim. Yeah, which so is so the on ro- the nose, as you say. It's like, oh, we're the we're the order. Yeah. Of the dragon angels. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty obvious. And they yeah. put their heraldry within their coats of arms. It's it's a taciturn uh communication to the other bloodlines, what their where they fit and their genealogies. And it was created as you know standards throughout history so that if they travel in, into other territories, they would be instantly recognized by the royals and they would understand where they fit. Um so when you talk about the Rothschilds that you brought in, the Rothschilds are actually a Jewish bloodline, Jewish-German bloodline, um, mm-hmm. and their original name was Bauer. And they were funded after the fall of the Templars to reestablish banking outside the church. And then they changed their name to Rothschild in about 1810 to 1812 when they established the London Bank to make a separation from the Jewish connection. And that they are part of the lower level branch organizations that would intersect into that thalamic tree. And I would put them because they were in charge of banking, they would be a branch and picture this thalamic tree as an evergreen tree or a cedar of Lebanon. Cause that's significant meanings to them. That's where the oath to create the giants was made. And that was where the temple uh, that's where the council of the gods ruled from both before and after the flood uh, and, and much more. So understand that you're going to have imagery in their belief system that's going to recognize Mount Sion or Mount Saphon or Mount Sirion or Mount Hermon, as we would commonly know it. It's the same name for the same mountain. Right. And so the Rothschilds are important, but they were brought in and they've been intermarrying to raise their level of their purity ever since their, their creation. But they're still a branch organization and family that would intersect into the Thelemic tree, probably at the Committee of 300, because that's the that's the uh, level of the 300 families that control the Davos people the IMF, the World Bank, World Trade, anything economic funnels into the the Committee of 300. And then as these branches go out on all sides of their tree, you have other hierarchies as that that tree branches out and downwards, and it all funnels back in into the hierarchy uh, to the lead branch organization, and in this case, the Rothschilds on the banking side, and then back into the Committee of 300. Hmm. So, is the uh, when you were talking about the Cedars of Lebanon, Mount Hermon, and so on, is that is where, if I remember, like in the um, Book of Enoch, the angels actually descend and make an oath to interbreed with humans. Is that correct? Yes, That's the, the, the site the where they come of, down. The oath of Harem anathema to carry it out to the end no matter what the consequences were in the start of and the start of the legal oath-based society because the divine representatives them on earth uh them as the spirit's offspring and the angels they both have legal tender over the earth through the council of the gods for a period of time 
all of the kings, all of the royales, receive their authority from the Council of the Gods over the 70 nations of the Council of 32. Where I get 70 nations from is the patriarchs uh, that are listed after the flood in Genesis 10 in the Table of Nations in First Chronicles, there's 70. And also in Deuteronomy 32, where uh, you have 70 sons representing 70 nations before the flood with Adam and again after the flood. And then there's a prophetic nature to Jacob, who also had 70 sons born to him in Egypt. So, OK, if the if the the picture that emerges is that all of the different races or nationalities of people are at or either are they coming from these these spurious offspring like is is our norwegians descended from thor who was like a a gilgamesh nephilim character of the north is that the idea um not really uh okay. i think i think um you have a survival... i guess i'm just wondering how how are how is yeah, each I was, group I have a there. leading yep. cast that is yeah yeah so you have uh, an appearance of humans after the flood that begins with the Noahites and, and then you have the Babel dispersion. But before the Babel dispersion, you also have Aboriginal peoples living in lands beforehand. And that's the giants uh, that the Noahites after Babel are going to go live amongst. And so giants either survive the flood. Uh, mm -hmm. which I'm open to. I, I, I tend to look more at second creation as, as my favorite position mm -hmm. um, that are created in the first hundred years. And they're already in the lands and are populating. So you have the gods walking amongst the humans, both before and after the flood, but they're mm -hmm. different gods. So in... Um, I'm not sure which pantheon uh, your audience would be most aware of, but let's just look at the Greek pantheon, which I think is understood by most. You have you have parent gods and offspring gods. So like Kronos and Gaia are parent gods. Right. And then gods like Aphrodite and Zeus and Poseidon are offspring gods. Yeah, you have the old gods, the Titans, replaced by the new gods. The yeah, and, there's, and right. in their mythologies, again, all around the world, the offspring gods overthrow the parent gods and kill them. Well, right. number one, you can't kill something immortal. So something else has happened. They may have killed their physical body, but they have this, this immortal, immortal spirit. What is, what is, if you want to understand chronology of prehistory, this, this is my advice for people and things start to fall in place on um, events and gods that are named. And you have the parent gods that ruled. And when, the flood came about for the violations that they created, they were sent to the pit abyss prison. And mm -hmm. then the host of the rebellious ones, it's like the host of the loyal ones, Hebrew Saba, which means an angel, uh, an army of angels has replaced them. So Zeus replaces Kronos after mm -hmm. the flood that's why Gil that's why hercules is a post-diluvian giant not an anti-diluvian giant uh, okay yeah yeah and so that explains why gilgamesh there's a gilgamesh after the flood uh that's created by nin and lugalbanda king of uruk 
to produce Gilgamesh, sixth generation. And But there is a Gilgamesh before the flood that's also recorded in the Enoch Book of Giants. It's not, uh, it's not uncommon to have post-diluvian giants named after anti-diluvian giants. So mm-hmm. after the flood, before the flood. And so after the flood, gods like Zeus take over on Olympus. Gods like Baal in the Bible take over from El as the sun. And Baal is the one in the Ugaritic text, along with Ashtaroth, who are credited for creating the Raphaim giants after the flood. Mm-hmm. And, also, he- and, and, also, and also in Greek mythology, it talks about um, uh, two races of giants. One was... Uh, destroyed and was full of war. And then afterwards, the one that is around now, as it's uh, talked about in in Hesiod and Herodotus, is the the second race of giants. And that would be the race from the offspring gods. Mm. So if you look, so if you look at other pantheons, it's set up the same way. So like you have, uh, before the flood, you have Absu and Tiamat and Anu in the Sumerian mythology, but after the flood, you have the offspring gods like Anki on Enlil taking over. In Egypt, you have Osiris and Isis as offspring gods ruling after the flood. Uh, and it's the same constant around the world. Mm, mm-hmm. Now, what you have to be careful of, yeah. though, is, is the myth, what some of the mythology attached to the parent gods is now taken over and and conflated with a lot of the offspring gods. So you have to look at the events and decide, you know, it was was if it was talking about something with Zeus or Osiris or Baal, was that really assigned to them, or is that part of the mythos that they took over when they took over the chief god of the of the pantheon from the parent god? So, but if you want to understand the chronology, that's when they ruled. Okay. Okay. So getting to today, how does that, how does all this inform your view of the world and politics and like what's going on conspiracy wise and so forth? Like, how do you live your life in light of these ideas that, you know, there are these Nephilim bloodlines that are still running things and, and manipulating the world? Well, for me, um, I'm at peace with the idea of this is the reality because I understand how we got here. Um, mm-hmm. I don't have to agree with it. I don't have to like it, but um, I understand the system. And I also understand where they're going um, because they have the same goal as what is prophesied in the Bible, where they want to bring about the end time through a globalist religion. Mm-hmm. Uh which is the Babylon religion rooted in Babel, which is the religion that was inherited and given to Nimrod by Hermes. Uh, That was the Enochian mysticism, son of Cain. There's two Enochs in the Bible, Enoch, son of Cain. Mm -hmm. What I would label the evil Enoch from a Christian perspective. And then you have Enoch, son of Jared, which is the one that was taken to heaven. They're also conflated within the uh, Gnostic and secret society accounts as being the same that's a that's a long story. I do kind of explain. I do explain that in book one in terms of uh, how they got there. Yeah, because um, evil Enoch isn't evil Enoch somehow like a like a crazy ascended angel idea like Metatron or something. Yeah, that's third Enoch. And... Third, yeah, it's so cra- <laughs> it's so hard to keep track of. Yeah, there's a lot. I of wish stuff people in the there. past would just use different names. 
yeah well and what and, and what the polytheists say is that uh, all the names uh in the atomites were stolen from the canites and it's actually a uh, yeah. a counterfeit bloodline so um so there's there's been that rivalry you know right from the beginning um so yeah so i i i understand that and I'm comfortable in the role right now. And, you know, I was pretty, you know, timid about it in the beginning, but, but once people understand the hierarchy of the world, that the four class system was set up by the giants and mm-hmm. they populated those top two classes that I talked about before is the oligarchical class, which we would understand as the corporations today. Uh, and there are other ones that are coming in with money, like, you know, um, Musk, but that, that's, that's small potatoes. Uh, that's, I mean, the amount of money that's off the books that's held by the Royals is unimaginable. They, mm. they, they look at Musk's money or Gates's money or Bezos. They are still poppers in their eyes in terms of the amount of money that they have. And they're the ones that they're, they're utilizing and as the face for bringing about, um, the new world order is what I like to call it is the, is the Nephilim world order back into place. So I'm comfortable with communicating to people. Here's how the class system was set up and that humans were designated as mundane, Mm -hmm. not part of the demigods. And the ancient meaning for demigod was the offspring of a God and a human female or a goddess and a human male. And both, genders of the gods produced uh offspring it just says gilgamesh comes from a goddess uh after the flood and so humans were designated into a small entrepreneurial class of bakers or tailors and just things that uh you know were so labor sort of intensive that they needed that skill but they didn't want to do it themselves as the nobility elite and then the slave and or and or labor class uh and that's been the standard all around the world it was the feudal system it was the same in europe and in north america till you know a couple hundred years ago and that's why they're trying to destroy the middle class today because all of those ideologies go back to a very small nobility class to control the mass of humans and that they want to have the universal religion put in place so that they can have a harmonic conversion so that they can evolve into godhood and uh they need this to come about but to do it you also need to have in their belief system a world government and that they're going to set up this royal dynasty uh but there can only be one royal dynasty there'll be a larger elite um and that's why you have rivalries throughout the of the lines because there could be one like the old highlander movies in 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 tv shows and that would be the fairy quickening aspect as opposed to the dragon of the drinking of blood you have the transfer through this energy life force or or lightning when you take the head of of the uh, of the warrior bloodline representative and they're trying to bring that about and make their stand and earn a realm on their own away away from god is is what they're what they believe that they can do so it, it starts to make sense that just as we had atlantis as trying to bring about the ten kings and world government and was the 
part of the golden age where the gods walked amongst humans and that uh, everything was good uh, until the giants went evil. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. They're trying to bring that back again. So when you look at the end time, they're trying to create those 10 kings. The New Atlantis, as the Rosicrucian Francis Bacon wrote about, where you have this universal religion that's in harmony with sciences as it was before the flood. Uh, and that's their in their belief system. The Gnostic religion, which is also a branched out of that, was Theosophy and New Age. But it's all that ancient root religion. Uh, that's the same identical religion with the same gods all around the world with this different vernacular names to it. They're trying to bring that about. And so everything that we see going on today is what was foretold in the Bible of this universal religion, as we are told in the book of Revelation as as Babylon, and you have the 10 kings, the 10 toes, the the 10 horns of this end time empire, um, the seventh empire that will make the way for the eighth empire, which is the Antichrist empire and that royal dynasty that goes forward in their in their belief system. Both sides are talking about the same nexus point. They have just different outcomes from the monotheists in the Christian belief, as I believe. Yeah, they, they both are talking about getting to the same. Like, yeah, exactly. Like you want. But one sees it as good and one sees it as bad. Um. Yeah, so is this is this what you were talking about? This they want to evolve into godhood. Is that basically what we're talking about when we talk about the coming of the Antichrist? Like this one who comes up and decide and has said, I have done it, I have evolved into God, sort of idea. Well, he's also going to have biblically a false resurrection or a resurrection of some sort. He's going to receive a mortal head wound. So he's going mm-hmm. to be have an extra elevation to him and will have an extra set of powers uh, that are provided to him as an avatar of the avatar and in this case the avatar would be satan just as he was the avatar into the avatar of judas to give him the strength to betray jesus and it's a standard polytheist belief system so the avatar of the avatar of buddha was vishnu and uh so expect that to sort of consolidate into one, but they're going to have rival bloodlines right up to the end until the true one actually sort of appears. So it's going to be very, very confusing. So there's lots of these royales who have uh, positioned themselves to want to be that dragon messiah so that their family can be the ruling dynasty going forward. And even in the King King of Jerusalem title um, that the Anjou say they have the rights to as they've scioned or grafted in bloodlines of not only King David, but also King Saul, in the time of the Exodus Wars of the Giants, you have Joshua awarding Jerusalem to the Benjamites. So they've got Benjamite Saul bloodlines in their belief system grafted in, which gave them the right to crown themselves the king of Jerusalem, uh, that is will be officially announced with that title in their in in their belief uh, at the time of the abomination that's recorded in the Bible and Revelation thirteen of the rise of Antichrist. So, yeah, they're all talking about the same thing, but it's going to be messy as we get there because these are brutal <laughs> rivals 
uh, even though they work together on the same agenda. Um, but at some point in time, one has to win out. So Antichrist, from a biblical perspective, will need a super Antichrist as well that he defeats to produce mm. his credentials as the Messiah because they counterfeit everything. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because if they do, like I've said that before on the show, they, they're counterfeiters to the way down. So they would need to counterfeit an Antichrist for them to defeat even. Yeah, that's a that's an yeah. interesting idea. Yeah. And what's interesting is if you look at the Gog War in Ezekiel 38 and 39, you know, it says Gog uh, of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach. Mm -hmm. Well, what's interesting about Gog is we don't get anything in the Bible of where Gog comes from or who yeah. he is. It's, yeah, it's very strange. They, we get going Mag back to going back we get to Mag uh, we get Magog who yeah. comes from Japheth. But I think he takes that name. But where we get Gog from is out of Greek mythology. And you're mentioning um, Albion. Uh, I was going to say well, Gog Magog, the giant. Yeah. Yeah. Iapetus, yeah. one of the parent gods before the flood, um, produced Albion, um, mm -hmm. Gog, and Magog. And again, I think post-Diluvian giants were named after those giants is how they show up in like British mythology, particularly in, in Wales and England. Um, but Gog is a giant, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And this is, and so somehow giants are sort of inferred into there, not only as the nations that, that come out of them through Magog, um, which we have scripturally, but there's an inference that giants are going to be in control of these uh, nations. And this is the war that happens before second Exodus that's recorded in Ezekiel 39. That also has the Gog war with the, the destruction of that army. Then you have second Exodus, which is a second half uh, event of the last seven years. So this is before the last three and a half years before antichrist comes to power and maybe the antichrist figure that uh, the true antichrist uses as his part of his his resume to to be the messiah and gog as you take that back to its greek meaning as it shows up in the new testament in the book of revelation and ezekiel 39 and 38 is understood as an end time antichrist type figure and mm. this is the same war that is the Joel 1 and 2 war versus Joel 3, which is Armageddon that follows. And those creatures in Joel 1 and 2 are identical to the war, to the creatures, the chimera type of creatures that are shown in the 200 million man war in Revelation 9 after the abyss is open and the imprisoned fallen angels come out that did all of these crimes and things both before and after the flood and the worst of the nephilim the terrible ones who are locked in the sides of the abyss that ezekiel 32 and isaiah 14 talk to us about so you have this exact same description of this war and i think that might be that counterfeit war that happens say six months to a year before the midpoint of the last seven years Mm. Mm. See, everybody, isn't this more interesting than Sunday school? You don't get this sort of stuff in Sunday school. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, in this in this model, then Jesus is not here simply to save us from our sins, although he is that. He is also like the final the final say in this 
in this cosmic war between the the fallen angels and the nephilim and humanity yeah. and he's sort of like the 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 penultimate resolution to that he, well, well he is and yeah yeah and and when we talked about the the very know, complex thing that's happening yeah yeah the spurious forces that don't mind destroying the whole world mm -hmm. um they're going to do that through the things they do. So the sorrows in, in Jesus's oration uh, with the chronology and order of events in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17 and 21. Um, you have these sorrows that get stronger throughout um, that fig tree generation. Uh, which, mm. And both of those are archetypical signs for the chronology to that affects that generation. Uh, the fig tree generation is very, very important because it's one specific generation and helps us look at the timing. And then you have the days of Noah, the third one that follows right after the fig tree. But the sorrows, you know, there are wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, famine, um, and earthquakes. And then if you add in what uh, Luke has on, because I like to overlay the additional details of Luke and Mark onto Matthew 14 or Matthew 24 to put the whole story in place. Uh, you'll have a surging of the sea. Those get stronger as you go through the fig tree generation. Then they start working together. We're just starting to see that work now. And we're starting to see this new world order or Nephilim or Nephilim world order starting to re reshape itself. And you see, you know, a grouping that has a lot of similarities to the Gog War starting to form in the Eastern Alliance, you know, with India and with China and with Russia and with the Persians and the Indians could be classified as uh, Indo-Aryan Persians as a, a branch of the the group that went down into the Persian reign where the area where the uh Persian Achaemenid kings took their genealogies back to the Indo-Aryans and, and old Persia and also uh Turkey with as Arma and then Meshek is the etymological root for Moscow and so you have Russia mixed in there as well that is starting to take form that's and is not opposing the new world order. They just will not take the imposed version of the European bloodlines. And they're going to uh, probably end up having five on one side and five on another side when those final 10 kings and their empires show up, just as you have the 10 toes on uh, five on each uh, in, in, in Daniel 2. So, yeah, you have these, 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 events that are going to get stronger in terms of catastrophes and wars to the point where unless jesus were to step in and he does all flesh would be destroyed mm. and so th these these events are coming on us by the polytheist forces they're contrived why? Because they want to bring on the rendezvous with destiny, the showdown with God. They want to wipe humans out, and they want to have an age without God and without his creation, humans. Mm -hmm. It's sort of remarkable that they, I mean, I don't know, I guess I've always wondered how they thought they could win that, but maybe their hubris knows no bounds. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think they actually, I don't think the angels actually thought that they could win. Okay. Uh, they 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 knew god intimately they know how powerful That's he true. is i i think they were looking for a peaceful resolution to and that they would go their separate ways and so that's why apart from him 
Yeah, and that's why, you know, when Satan wanted to, you know, raise his throne up to heaven to be like God, you know, he wants to be not only to overthrow God if he could, but there's no way, and he would know he could not. The only way that he could have his throne over his own realm and permanently would be a negotiated settlement. So what's interesting is you get that scenario in the movie, uh, and I think there's more than one of them with Doctor Strange, and they're trying to get Earth as the settlement for that treaty for these polytheist forces and their gods um, mm -hmm. to live away from the evil Lord of the universe or the black Lord of the universe, as they call them. And typically when I say we live in their world, all entertainment is basically sponsored by the polytheists. So they're yeah. just telling us what they're going to do uh, in all of their entertainment and all of their imagery. We just have to wake up and recognize what they're telling us. Yeah. I, I've I've said similar, but then I get into spots where I go, well, it doesn't matter if you've noticed it or not. No, people don't care. It's just a, eh. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know. But yeah. as more things happen, if we plant seeds, maybe they'll start to connect the dots because they've heard some of these things talked about. One can only hope. Uh, before we go, I wanted to ask you one thing, which may seem random, but speaking of like, you know, the you see all these, I've had this question forever because when you look at these old uh, images of of the gods and the hybrid gods and everything from around the world, Egypt, uh, Mesoamerica, Babylon, all of them, Greeks, they all like Gilgamesh or Osiris, they're all holding these little bags. Have you noticed this? And these yep. reliefs. Yep. Yeah. And or. Bag? Yeah. And I, they I've also... asked people this. Because the best answer I've ever gotten is like, oh, it's another bag. It's just a bag. <laughs> what is in that bag? Yeah. It's, like it's the one, the Gilgamesh in the Louvre in in uh, in Paris, he's holding a bag and a, and a yep. full-grown lion in the other hand because he's enormous. And he's just holding a lion like it's a kitten. But he's got in the other hand, he's got a bag. Yeah. And in most of those depictions, they'll be holding, some people call it a pine cone, could be a crystal. Or a pine, yeah, pine cone, yeah. I think it's more of a crystal. Crystal is part of the angelic yes, technology. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I think the bag or purse, as I tongue in cheek like to call it at times, um, is probably something to do with the technology uh, that's associated with the ritual that's going on in those depictions and that pine cone or that crystal or, or whatever that is. And there, and there's use as you see the larger. A lot of people only see maybe a, one figure on each side, but the larger depiction has multiple of these figures. Some of them look like Gilgamesh, yes, but it's not Gilgamesh or Nimrod. Uh, and the identical ones have an eagle face, mm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, same depiction, just with an eagle face. Trubum has four faces: face of a human, face of a bird, could be eagle, raven, or owl. Uh, is the face of a lion and the face of an ox or a bull. And so those are cherubim. And when they take their form physically in the world, they take one of those faces and they're doing this ritual around this kind of tree or some sort of technology. And some people sort of imagine that as the tree of life, whatever it is, it has to do with the angelic technology that they were using on earth that includes interdimensional travel connection to what they would call the atma or the atman particle also known as the the brahman and the divine essence as the new age would call it um 
you know, so access to all knowledge and access to um, powers that we can't even imagine that they're going to be bringing about when they walk amongst us again in, in, in the end times. So that's my sort of take on it. I know everybody has a different take, but there's no reason why a God is walking around with a bag. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> unless it's like, like you said, it, yeah, it's, I, I like the, it's the yeah. technology and knowledge that they're bringing. Yeah. yeah. Because it would be a very, I think that they want to achieve when they talk about it, because it goes back to this idea of like gnosis and Gnosticism that being saved through knowledge yeah. is that they think they can achieve immortality and all the powers of God through, through sufficient material knowledge that they can through science, basically yep. achieve immortality and not die and uh, upload their consciousness into the cloud yep. and all this stuff. And yeah. then down into sleeves are Oikotarians. And where I get Oikotarian from is habitation in uh, Jude 1, 6, when it's talking about the angels that left their habitation and in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 2 is the house in heaven. That's the Greek word Oikotarian only used twice in the, in the New Testament in Greek. There are variations of it, but specifically for this house in heaven or habitation, and it's defined as a dwelling place for the spirit. And so what they're what they're planning to do is you know create a, a a world with these angels walking amongst us and for their spirits offspring who have disembodied spirits humans sleep and their spirit goes back to heaven until whichever part of the resurrection sequence that, that we're going to be part of so this is all sort of part of their their mythos and and and, and their and their belief system so you know, I think, uh, you know, I think you had asked a question just uh, a little bit earlier is, is so why is all of this important? Um, mm -hmm. And I gave some of the reasons I'll leave people with probably the most important reason. And uh, it's that Jesus warned us that not only will it be like the days of Noah, and we can't imagine what's going to come at us with, with that, but so much so that even the elect would be deceived if that were possible and yeah. it is possible and so he promises us to, to, to this for the elect is that yes we will go through tribulation but we will not go through the wrath of god uh, and we will not go through the time of temptation as revelation 3:10 talks about that's the time of trial that's the hour of temptation or trial that's the hour same word greek horror that's used in revelation 17 when the 10 kings with a hive-like mind hand their power over to antichrist that's the same hour that's used in revelation 14 when we get the summary of the last three and a half year events that's used with the destruction of babylon and the same and follows the 144,000 first fruits in heaven uh, after finishing their commission of the first three and a half years at the same time when you have the two witnesses doing their commission for the first three and a half years and are part of the first fruits in heaven and the ones that in Revelation 6 are told to wait for, for the ones to come out of the tribulation of the saints in the first three and a half years. And that this is the same hour that's described in the details of Babylon as the first event of the last three and a half years in Revelation 18 with the destruction of Babylon. And uh, that happens in an hour. There's that hour that Jesus is coming back for, and then there's an hour 
of these antichrists that all meshes into a time that he's going to spare us from, but we will go through tribulation. And tribulation is more than just the last three and a half years with the great tribulation. It is the affliction that's in Matthew 24, and that's the same word for tribulation in Matthew 24, 21. And it's the Greek word thalipses, which is tribulation, not wrath. And we know that Matthew 24, 21 is the great tribulation of the world not seen since uh, the beginning of creation versus the tribulation or affliction in Matthew 24, 7 to 8 and Revelation 7, same Greek word again for that. And in Mark 13, when it's talking about that great tribulation not seen since the beginning of the world, not translated as tribulation there exact same parallel account matthew 13 19 to matthew 24 21 but that word is affliction just as it's used in matthew 24 7 to 8 that's the tribulation that we're going to be going through before the trial and uh, and when the abomination that comes at that midpoint of the last seven years so we have to prepare ourselves not to be deceived and to try and help others not to be deceived because the delusions will be so strong that antichrist will be very convincing to be the real mm-hmm. can, uh, antichrist mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah well that was a lot to think about <laughs> like i said people if you get the if you get the book or the upcoming second book which you should get both uh it is it is quite a tome uh, an interesting tome to work through, and it has a, a lot of stuff. A lot we didn't even come close to covering the whole the whole thing. I mean, yeah, it would take. It was just so much. So, yeah. It's just so much. But uh, thank you for doing this, uh, Gary. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and uh, I hope that your new book uh, goes just as well, if not better, than the first. I I I, I think it'll do very very well. You know, I said I would never write a sequel to the Genesis Six conspiracy, but. You know, over the years, and I do, you know, probably six or seven shows a week, um, and there's an angst out there and a thirst for what's, what more does the Bible have to say on on this whole topic? And so I didn't want to do a sequel because I didn't want to be redundant. I just didn't realize how little Christians were taught about what's in the whole Bible. Oh, and, it's basically you know, nothing. If you go to church, any church, you basically just get the sermon of, uh, dear people, please be good every Sunday. Yeah. Over and yeah. over again, and and without and without the context of where we came from and where we're going, yeah, yeah, it's it, it's it's crazy. Uh, we need to understand the context to to fortify our faith and and to prepare. So, so I think this book this book was written directly for Christians, and it goes deeper into the Bible um, than any other book does in terms of these topics it goes into all of the giants and it's mostly post-diluvian giants that we're going to talk about this because that's mostly what we're concerned about so i'll name all the different giant tribes that were after the bible i will name the hybrid tribes and i will take all of those back to patriarchs i'll give you the angelic hierarchy both loyal and disloyal i'll bring in the mount Hermon and the council of the gods connection i'll highlight all the words that christians need to understand prophecy with the context of of the things that happened in prehistory to define what babylon is or the beast empires or whatever the the allegorical things you need that's defined from within the bible and then i'll walk people through all of the giant wars after the flood i'll go through it by all each campaign in 
the conquest, uh, and you'll understand who these giants are. I'll take those giant wars and identify how we know those are giants through the age of the judges, through uh, the kings of David uh, and Solomon and Saul. And I will then transition that information into a chronology for end-time prophecy using that information in that context and showing how it fits together without contradiction. But it starts by putting everything around in terms of prophecy with what Jesus said and not vice versa. Beautiful. And before we go, can I ask you, I'm just curious, what uh, what sort of denomination of Christian do you subscribe to? Uh, you know, I don't have a denomination. I, yeah. I you know, <laughs> I figured I just knew, I just knew talk. I was just knew reading the book. I was like, I know this guy can't be like a Catholic. This isn't something a Catholic could produce. Yeah. yeah. No, my, my wife is, um, yeah. but you know, I just classify myself as, as a Christian and a believer in God and I'm comfortable in, 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 in any church that I would attend because you're there for worship and yeah. we're worshiping the same God. I'm not here to divide Christians. I'm here to hopefully try and unite Christians because we we get so legalistic and we're harder on each other than uh, and we should be supporting each other. And mm-hmm. we need to we need to teach more about what's in the Bible uh, so we can put on that armor of God, not try and impose people uh, with our beliefs. Have to roll that belief system. So, if we want people to to give the Bible a look, so yeah, I, I try to you know run down any parts of Christianity. I just think everybody's at a different level on their spiritual sort of path and knowledge uh, within the Bible. And but more and more people are waking up that the, the ministers are not preparing us for the times that we're in. And it mm-hmm. seems like uh, you have two. Two options. One is is Christianity and the Bible is obsolete, or maybe the churches could teach what how the Bible is applicable to these times and what is taking place and what will take place. Excellent. Well, thank you again for doing all this, Gary. It was it was really fun. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Right. Thank you. Bye bye.